The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This time we have two segments. First, Anne from Beauty Podcast drops in to talk about the music of Pokemon Snap for the N64. Despite being somewhat different from most other Pokemon games, we were able to make some interesting observations about its soundtrack and voice acting. As for the game itself, listen after the outro for that conversation. Our second segment is an interview with Erica Lindbeck from Anime Milwaukee 2020. You might remember her from Episode 7. Since then, she's done some additional work for Pokemon, this time for the Pokemon Masters mobile game. You'll find out about that, as well as other projects she's been involved in. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Big Podcast, and this is our second Pokemon side game music discussion. Uh, we're going more or less in release order, so this is our discussion of the music of Pokemon Snap for the N64. So the first console Pokemon game of sorts, I guess you could say. Give a little background on this game. Uh, you play as the character Todd Snap, and uh, you're taking, uh, you're visiting this island, uh, and your goal is basically to take a lot of photos of Pokemon uh, while you're there. And you get scored on that, and you have various objectives. Um, not a super long game, potentially. I think the speed runs for this, uh, for folks who really know where everything is, is like under half an hour, uh, depending on what kind of you know metric you're using or what kind of goal you're going for. But uh, just to give a little background on the game itself, let's see, it was released in 1999 in Japan and North America. Japan, it came out in March. Uh, U.S. it came out in June. You may remember that Todd actually made an appearance in the anime for about three or five episodes, uh, not long before this game came out here. And then, let's see, it came out in 2000 in Australia and Europe. Let's see, it actually started as a not-actually-Pokemon game. It was sort of loosely based on the Jack and the Beanstalk fairy tale. And eventually it got changed over to Pokemon, um was actually supposed to be, I guess, originally for the N64 disk drive. This was a thing that came out in Japan, but not anywhere else. It, it was kind of never really went anywhere, but it was uh, something that would attach to the bottom of the N64, and it had features like a real-time clock and, and things of that nature. But like most of the other stuff for that, like I think Ocarina of Time and a number of other games, it was eventually moved to a cartridge. Let's see if I haven't mentioned already. It was developed by Hal, who worked on actually a large number of the N64 side games, maybe all but one. They also worked on Pokemon Pinball. Uh, I don't, yeah, Hal, well, actually, that was that was Jupiter, I think, as, as we mentioned last time, although they borrowed the engine from Hal's Kirby's Pinball Land. Yeah, it says, it's, it says they came in light because they weren't making their deadline, so Hal was asked to, like, help them finish it, basically. Ah, uh, I gotcha. All right, and then uh, we do have, unlike with Pokemon Pinball, we do have, uh, if you get to the end credits, there is an actual musician credit on there. It's uh, Ikoku Mimori. I hope I got that kind of right. She, uh, she had been involved in video game music for a while, actually. Although this is, as far as we can tell, uh, she may have gone uncredited in some of the games she worked on. That's not entirely unheard of. Uh, but this might actually be the last video game she worked on, which is kind of a, a bit strange. Uh, her credits go back to, like, the 80s. She worked on some Famicom games. Famicom, of course, being the uh, the Japanese equivalent of the NES. Like, uh, some of the Load Runner games. She worked on kind of a uh, a bit of a cult classic called Metal Storm. Um, I, I haven't played that game, but I know a fair bit about it. It was actually, uh, before I had subscriptions in Nintendo Power, it was one of the issues I had on there. Um, and also, like, uh, R-Type 3 for the Super Nintendo uh, and uh, were you able to find out anything on uh, Ikuku? I uh, hope I said that kind of <laughs> close to right. Yeah, Ikuko Mimori. Um, yeah, a lot of what you had, her career seems to have begun as early as 1986, working for IREM, and you know she 
transferred to Koei and then eventually came to HAL Laboratory working on this Jack and Beans project that was actually Pokemon Snap. Um, yeah, she had a website that hasn't been updated since 2010. It's currently under construction. Her Facebook is mostly filled with pictures of dogs and beaches, so there's really nothing indicating what her career has been uh, since this. It's possible she's just enjoying enjoying life, but I don't know, possibly she'll accept my friend request and <laughs> tell tell me what she's been up to. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can only assume she went through some sort of career change or something like that after this game, if if she got married or had a kid or something like that. and uh, But still, as far as we know, still around, just not doing a video yeah. game or anything else musically, at least on a professional level, which is kind of unfortunate. But um, Yeah, I really liked her work on this game, so... Yeah, and uh, I should point out, if you um, want uh, to get a soundtrack of this, this is one of the very few Pokemon games that has a commercially released soundtrack. Now, there might have been something in Japan, we're kind of kind of fuzzy on that one, but we mentioned this in our European Pokemon music episode, but in Germany, they released this sort of combined soundtrack of Pokemon Snap and Pokemon Sim under the title Gotta Catch the Sound. It's got kind of a, a reversible cover on there. You can actually swap it for the stadium side on that one. But apparently, uh, from what I've been told from one of our German listeners, uh, Lapras GD, that it was released in conjunction or through the uh, German equivalent of Nintendo Power magazine that ran uh, there for a while. And so it's not super rare or anything. I did see a copy pop up on eBay for like two hundred plus dollars. Do not spend that much money on on that. I forget exactly what I got my copy for, but it was considerably less than that. I will I will tell you. It's also got uh, in addition to most of the music from those two games. It's got uh, a couple remixes from each game that takes some of the original music and does some kind of interesting stuff with those uh, two from Snap, two from Stadium. And we talked about that a little bit in our European music episode. But uh, as far as the game itself and how we experienced it, um, so despite owning a cartridge for about a decade or so, uh, I didn't play it when it originally came out. Um, for this thing, uh, this is really my first time playing it. I played it via the uh, Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, since the original Wii Shop is now closed down. You can't buy anything from it. Uh, you won't be able to get it there, but you can if you have a, a Wii U. You can go on the e- the eShop there and uh, pick it up. As far as anything more modern re-releases, uh, I have to assume that if and when N64 games come to uh, Nintendo Switch Online, this will probably be one of the games, maybe not right at the start, but it'll probably be one of the games they try to tar- work in there. And what was your sort of experience with this game? Uh, like you, I didn't play it when it first came out, but uh, my family got an N64 in the early aughts, and so like not too long after it released, and this was one of the first games we got, and I I played the dickens out of this game. I just loved it so much. No, there's definitely uh, a s- sort of fan base uh, for this game. We'll, we'll talk at the end more about sort of our overall impressions of the game's mechanics and stuff like that, whether we want to see a sequel, but... Yeah, there's there's definitely some folks who have a lot of great memories about this game, um, although there's also a, a, a decent contingent of folks that this game kind of flew over their heads as to why folks would want to want to play it. It's it's kind of one of those games, I, I would say, along with like Hey You Pikachu, that you kind of either get or you don't. But <laughs> but uh, this is going to be primarily a discussion about the music, and I guess we should kind of talk about the overall sound before we get into the individual tracks. Compared to a lot of other Pokemon games, this definitely is going for a, a different style. First off, the game takes place, not every level has a tropical theme to it, um, but definitely has a sort of a tropical island vibe going uh, going for it uh, with a lot of the music in there. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, uh, with a few exceptions, I'd say the music is definitely a little slower paced and more laid back and less energetic than you'll find in most of the other Pokemon games, both the main series and the side games we'll, we'll be talking about. And I guess you could kind of give it a sort of a, say it has kind of an ambient vibe. Uh, do, you, do you kind of agree with those descriptions overall, Anne? Yeah, I do. It's kind of got a very easy listening sort of like surprisingly modern like ambient tracks like for when it came out i think like like i can see some of this music 
if it was re-released today, being very popular with that scene of just, you know, stuff to listen to in the background. And, you know, compared to our last game where it's very different, a very different vibe. Oh, definitely there. I guess I should give a little bit of an overview of, of the N64 sound hardware or lack thereof uh, while we're while we're talking <laughs> about this. The, the N64 really has no dedicated sound hardware, so there are uh, some standard, I guess you could say, sound engines that are used um, that reproduce music. It's very sample-based, kind of higher fidelity samples than, say, like the uh, Super Nintendo could do. But yeah, as far as the, the music in this game, it's... Um, Definitely going for a different vibe there. Well, I, I guess we, we're going to go a little bit track by track. We're not going to cover every track in this game. There's probably a couple dozen uh, distinct <laughs> tracks in this one. But we might as well start with the uh, the title screen theme, which um, I guess in contrast to what we just said, is definitely one of the more energetic ones. It's kind of a, I'd say it's a, it's like an island party or festival uh, tune. You kind of expect that from a from a title screen track. You want to, it to grab attention um, mm-hmm. So that when people start up the game, it has a memorable beat there. Although there are there are some exceptions in video games. Uh, what do you, what did you think about that, Anne? Well, on its own, I very much like it. I, I like the island theme. I, I love that it's going for something that just sounds a little different than Indigo League and some of the other Pokemon music we'd heard before. It does feel a little out of place because I believe as the game loads, it plays that um, a mysterious sighting track which is like a, a bit more of the ambient <laughs> sound and, and got a lot of synths going and and then suddenly it goes into island theme after a, a shutter sound effect. So I found it a little off-putting the first few times, but I kind of warmed up to it. But yeah, by itself as a track, I really do quite like it. Yeah, if I had to compare it to a later side game that we'll be talking about at some point probably... Uh, in the uh, the Ranger games, it definitely reminds me of the uh, Guardian Signs game, which is also very much a, a tropical island or chain of tropical island settings, with a, a little bit of a different uh, thing for each island in the uh, in the game there. So I, I think that'd be the closest comparison. Although we'll, we'll come to that game in a while, maybe next year. It might not be till twenty twenty one at the pace we're we're doing these one one a month. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of. Uh, agree there. Um, and uh, I know you picked out some tracks there. Why don't you uh, go ahead and, and share one of them? Okay, well, in no particular order, I was really struck by the volcano route uh, theme, because it starts out, and there's a lot of drums, and, and like, it seems very specific to location. And then there comes in this jazzy bass line, and then a flute, like, the track goes in places I did not expect, but it gives me all these different musical feels. Like the drums kind of give me a very intense volcano tribal kind of feel. And then you get this jazz. With, and if you play the poke flute and the Pokemon start dancing, like that starts getting really fun. So yeah, like I was just very taken by this track just because it, it sounded so appealing, but also it just kept bending in different directions the longer you listen to it. Yeah, yeah, the volcano track very much drum based. I would absolutely agree with with that uh, assessment. I mean, there's a couple of ways you can certainly go if you're in a very hot environment. I mean, this one has sort of a it's it's not definitely the fastest track uh, for any of the level themes. There are about what uh, six or seven or eight levels in this game, um, each of which lasts maybe two to four minutes, depending on uh, the pace you go at. You eventually get a, an item that'll let you. Uh, move forward a little faster. We're, we're going to spoil a little bit of this stuff in this game, um, and 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 things like that. So they could have done maybe a, a slower thing with a more maybe oppressive sound, like it, it's mm. so hot and and you know overwhelming there. But they went with something a little bit different that maybe is more like, um, you know, th- this game came out actually not too long after uh, we, we mentioned a, a Zelda game last time. We did some comparisons to Link's Awakening. I, I think with this one, we're going to do some more comparisons to Ocarina of Time that had come out the, the previous year and may have had, I think, at least some influence on some of the music in this game. It It's not entirely dissimilar from, I guess, the, the Gerudo Valley area of, of that game, uh, more so the city than maybe the, the Death Mountain area. But I, I think you're you're about right there. Any other thoughts on this particular track? Just this one stuck out to me as the most unique. Like as an actor, I appreciate 
bold and different choices. And I think, you know, the obvious choices are to go very oppressive or, you know, to be really dramatic, like fire. And again, to just have the drums that we expect and then suddenly jazz and a flute. Like, I just appreciate that she took a chance and, and did something a little unexpected and the track works. Yeah, I'll definitely agree. None of the levels here, uh, some of them aren't the most memorable, but none of them I would say have have bad music or anything like that. So, yeah, I wanted to, to go over to, uh, to be honest, this is probably one of the more memorable or most well-known uh, themes in the game. After about, it's like the fourth or fifth level in, in the game, you get to this... Um, this cave. Now, there's not to be confused with the tunnel. That's the second uh, main level in the game. This is a a cave that has a very very interesting theme. It's got this kind of I don't know if it's a xylophone. That's probably not quite or marimba, but very high pitch. So maybe it is more like a xylophone, which tends to be the higher pitch instrument. Gives it a kind of a very sparkly vibe. Uh, going back to Ocarina of Time, I was kind of comparing it to, in my notes, to uh, Zora's Domain, which is kind of a gives me a similar vibe as, as this one. Probably one of the most uh, beloved tracks in this game. Uh, and do you kind of agree with that? Yeah, and it's interesting you brought up ambient music at, at the beginning of the show because this one is the most dreamy. Like it's very like echoey as sparkly as you said and like it just sounds like you're almost entering another world in a way and with the i don't know the the atmosphere of a cave you've got jigglypuff being chased by a coughing in the background or the singing or the you know the little echoes of the pokemon voices like it really has a, a very special little sound to it it works perfectly i think yeah, I can definitely see why it's one of the most memorable ones, and, and it's 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 a very interesting level because I think this is the first one. Uh, the zero one is the vehicle that Todd is in for the for the when he's out in, in the wild there, and this is the one, uh, the first level I think where it actually kind of can fly. Uh, once you once you uh, unlock this level, you you sort of descend into it and float around in it. So I think the the dreamy quality uh, gives is a, is a good good fit there and it sort of gives you a very awe-inspiring uh vibe to this level anything else ann on this one pretty good pretty good <laughs> yeah yeah i like the the b section as well the the da, 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 something of, of that nature i don't know if i got the melody quite right there but that makes this one um in contrast to sort of the the very um bright a section i think is is uh gives this one an interesting structure to it. Okay, and uh, why don't you pick another track out there that you want to talk about? Okay, um, let's see. I really like well, I, the hut by the river, but all the water tracks. Like, I especially love just the, the sounds of the nature and birds and water rippling. Um, but the hut by the river is just a nice, peaceful little track that I found to be really quite lovely. Yeah, yeah. I, I should clarify that when they say the hut by the river, there is a river stage, but this is actually not. <laughs> it's a little weird because it's 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 actually part of another stage called yeah. the <laughs> called the uh, I think it's called the valley stage, and this is the one where you're headed you're headed down a river. And when I say down mm-hmm. a river, you're going. Uh, this is one of the more more faster paced, at least in places, stage uh, with with some waterfalls and some steep declines, as opposed to there's another river stage where you're just kind of going down a bit of a more of a, a lazy river experience there. But yeah, that that level. Let, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, unfortunately, I, I, one reason I'm kind of moving forward here is I'm I'm a little bit fuzzy on the hut by the river uh, song. There, it's right at the end of the stage. If you can trigger it, right. And, We'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the actual game, but I want to talk about the valley stage, which is this one where you're going down this uh, long river down a canyon. And it reminds me of a Disney ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a very different type of, of ride there, and you've got, um, it has kind of a, a bit of a Wild West vibe, I'd actually say to it, mm. but... Kind of like the the cave one, there's also a, a B section, but the, let's go back to that first description I gave, the, the Wild West part. Do you kind of kind of get that, uh, what I'm saying there? I do, yeah. And again, kind of a different feel for a valley 
especially one with a lot of water action than you would expect. But it really does seem to fit the color scheme and the the feel of that level. Yeah, it, it's like I said, much faster, uh, much faster moving water. You got to be at least in parts. You're going to get um, move very quickly from one part to another as you move down there, and you've got to really react fast. So it kind of makes sense as one of the later levels in the game, where hopefully you've gotten more used to some of the the mechanics there. But overall, uh, I think pretty interesting with that. Uh, and I, I kind of usurped you there. Why don't you pick, oh, no, out, no. Uh, pick out another level theme that you really liked? Okay, since technically they they go together in my head, but they don't go together in the game, I also really just love the actual river, the lazy river. And again, like, as I said, just the, the sounds of the nature and just this calming, calming, easy listening river track. Yeah, very different vibe from, like I said, the, the mm. valley one, much slower paced. It's more of kind of a river slash almost kind of a swamp stage and you've got a yeah you've got a lot more time there to sort of take in uh the visuals there although there's still a lot of pokemon on that one and you mentioned the ambient noises um there's some water type noises there there's also some like non pokemon wildlife sounds in in yeah. a lot of the levels <laughs> that sort of give you more of an impression that you are uh in i guess you could say a more of a real environment Rather than in a more standard, I guess you could say, level in the video game, where if this had, like, say, more more powerful music, you know, uh, or more melodic music, there's still some decent melodies in here, uh, you know, maybe that would that would give these levels a very much a different feel in there um, than some of that. I agree. We're a Miracle wasn't written or rewritten to work with Pokey on the first movie. And if for some reason you don't believe me on that, I do have an email from one of the folks behind the song. In any event, despite its unrelated origins, it seems to do a great job matching up with the film. But why is that? There's the obvious stuff, like references to a storm and tears early in the piece, and some later lyrics that provide a good summary of the relationship between Ash and Pikachu. However, there's another possible explanation. We're a Miracle definitely features some of Christina's more aggressive vocal qualities. Normally this gives her songs a sensual vibe, but here it has the benefit of making her sound a bit more like, well, you know. Anyway, if you'd like to hear a more in-depth analysis of this song, as well as its Japanese equivalent, Together with the Wind, a few years ago I recorded a discussion with Anne from PV Podcast, and you should find a link in the episode description. Thanks. All right, well, we have, I think, a couple more to talk about, but I did want to mention that there is apparently actually a cut level in this game, and uh, it was supposed to be, I guess you could say, horror-themed. Now, we don't know much about the level. I don't think I've seen... I looked up some beta footage and stuff like that, and uh, it doesn't seem like any, like, screenshots of this level survived. Apparently, it was cut for... Various reasons, probably time and, you know, possibly move to a cartridge or something like that, or something just technically wasn't working with it. Um, I, I read something that it was mainly for ghost Pokemon. And since there's really only three ghost Pokemon anyway, like that probably expedited the decision if it was a timing one. Yeah, yeah. Haunter got moved to a different level in the game. So Haunter is in mm-hmm. there, but um, they could potentially do some stuff maybe with, with psychic Pokemon in there as well. The, the Alakazam line yeah. is absent from this game, as it should be noted. But uh, the the track name is what? Fantastic Horror? And um, so, yeah, I have some, some notes on this track. You can totally listen to it. Um, it I don't think it's on the official soundtrack a- album, but... Ikuko uh, was was nice enough to, uh, I guess, release that at some point, or it may have wound up on, if there is a Japanese soundtrack, it might have wound up there. But it, it's got, it's sort of a demented waltz. Uh, it's definitely in like 3-4 or 6-8 time or something like that. So it has a, a different time signature than I would say most of the other stuff, which I think is in in, in some common time or some, some variation, 4-4 or something like that. Instrumentation is, is I would say, uh, kind of eerie. With there's a there's uh, an organ as you might expect, and also kind of a I guess you could say kind of a, a whistle sound effect. Um, and you also took a listen to this. Uh, uh, what were your thoughts? 
I I love how it opens with just like the clarion bells and the synth and then the organ comes in like I love the bells on this one. It's just very eerie through a haunted graveyard sort of <laughs> a feel. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, if you compare it to stuff like this type of music is often used in, I suppose, the, the, the franchise that comes to mind or, well, there's Castlevania or I think this this type of music would probably be more likely to be used in something like a, uh, a Ghouls and Ghosts uh, series game. Maybe uh, Luigi's Haunted Mansion. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere in between probably those two in terms of style, because there's a lot of ways you can kind of go with this kind of spooky music. Um, this is a bit more cartoonish, I would say, than some of the other stuff. It's, it's kind of a shame that this this kind of level, uh, like I said, got cut. Um, now, we should also mention um, there's also apparently a boss theme that supposedly went with the stage, which is kind of odd because... Pokemon Snap, other than, I guess, one other level we're going to talk about in a moment, it doesn't really have anything that would constitute a boss. Uh, maybe that was planned for more stages at one point to, to get through there, but that's kind of an, an odd concept. Uh, and any thoughts? I don't know if you listened to this track or not. I, I listened to it yeah, once or twice, but... I, I didn't actually listen to it. Like The concept of a boss level for this game is... A little bit odd. Like, I mean, the bonus level makes sense, but it's like, there's really not a lot of conflict except with yourself. So is the boss level like he has to submit to National Geographic? Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure where you would get the stakes for a boss level with this, but so I, I can see why maybe in the project, uh, in the process of developing this game, that track might have been put to the wayside. Yeah, yeah, not sure really what what happened there. I mean, if they at least have some like concept art for this stage, that'd be nice to see at some mm -hmm, point. But yeah. right now, all we've got is the music, and like I said, it's it's definitely unused. Okay, well, you had mentioned that the there's a bonus level in this game once you complete uh, a lot of the main tasks in the main, I guess, six or so levels in there. Do you want to talk about the the music for that one, Anne? Yeah. So. Um... Rainbow Cloud is kind of the bonus level, and it's where you can find Mew, and it's after you get all the Pokemon signs, so like they're all in the sky as constellations, and the music is, I really love it. It's got a, a cute little melody, and very, there's a lot of gravity, I guess, to the, like, even though it's kind of that same sort of synthy sound in a lot of the other levels, like, it feels very full. It feels like the chords are all triads, and like... And it's just very grandiose, and it's it's a fun track. I, I like it a lot. Yeah, I kind of grouped these together because there there are basically like three of these Mew related tracks that have some similar elements. Yeah, mysterious sighting is one, right? Yeah, the opening cinematic, okay. uh, mysterious sighting. There's this rainbow cloud, and then there's actually there's there's two credits themes. This is. Uh, one of those is, is based on the Mew theme. When you complete the Mew level, you get the, the first credits theme, and then there's a second one I believe you get when you complete the uh, this game's partial Pokédex. There's about 63, not 64, 63 different Pokémon in this game. But as far as uh, the, the Mew track in, in this one and, and in the Rainbow Cloud level, yeah, I think that's, um, that's extremely effective in giving a, a vibe uh, to that level, which is actually, you know, there, there's, there's not technically a lot to it um you're just going along a straight path and then you have to sort of you have to to get a mu photo because if you just try to take a picture of you normally you'll get your your it has this orb around it that'll light up and block uh the picture you have to you know use some of your your tools that you've acquired throughout the game to try and uh get it so you can actually just take a picture that's actually a kind of a loose level. You just have to get like, no matter how bad your picture is, as long as it's actually of Mew, you'll you'll complete the level. But as far as the song, I, I kind of wish I had more to say about it. The, all the Mew tracks have sort of a an ancient civilization vibe to it. That that I would definitely say in a mysterious quality to them, which definitely fits. You know, at, at this point in, in the game, you know, you don't really have. I, I forget when the like the, the the Japanese Pokemon Stadium games or the Mew giveaways had. Mew was still very much a sort of, uh, especially in the West, a very mysterious Pokemon that you didn't know much about and couldn't really didn't really have a legitimate way to get at this point in the in the franchise. So. 
Um, I, I think the song definitely works. It's maybe not the most interesting one in there, but it works for that particular level. Hmm. Since you brought up um, some of the similar tracks, like the um, the staff role at the end, uh, Your Work Is Done, I kind of just wanted to point out it's a really interesting track because it seems to combine, as it goes along, a lot of the different um, motifs and sounds and vibes of the previous levels as it goes through, like like definitely the melody of Mew and, and the Rainbow Cloud, but it also seemed to at times kind of just give a little bit of a of the volcano level feel and a little bit of the river feel. Maybe I was projecting a little on it, but it, it sounded like it was trying to combine a little bit of the of the journey you'd been on the game through that last that last credits. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I'll have to take a, a re-listen there. The, the, okay, maybe, the, maybe I didn't then, but it sounded like it. Yeah, it's, um, but uh, I'm not sure, I didn't have a chance to re-listen to everything quite as much as I would like. I only got through the first credit sequence, which uses a more of a, a party uh, a theme, mm, kind yeah. of similar to the, melodically distinct from the title screen theme, but uh, stylistically not all that different. But yeah, that, that, I, mean, I think that, that does a pretty good job. There's, there's obviously themes for a lot of the menu stuff, uh, which I, I'd say is decent. Um, the level themes are probably going to be a bit more memorable than, than anything else. But there's, there's a couple other things I wanted to bring in here that are, that are sound, um, sound related. There's, uh, late in the game, you get this Pokemon flute, and it has a couple songs associated with it, although none of them are the Pokemon flute song from the, uh, the main series games. Um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, there's like three different songs. I'm not really sure how you decide which one to trigger. You have to move the, the C buttons, or since I was playing the virtual console version, you have to move the right analog stick, which is a little bit awkward sometimes, uh, since it can also be used for camera movement. But uh, I'd say there's three songs. One of them is a, definitely a traditional island theme. Uh, there's a second one that I guess is kind of a jig, although it, it uses more island instrumentation. It, it doesn't sound super... Well, I mean, it's still a flute. I guess instrumentation is probably the wrong word there. But uh, and the third one is a bit more modern and jazzy. I would say uh, was that kind of the the vibe you got, Anne, from the the flute? Yeah, I I didn't figure out how to pick which song I wanted to listen to very easily either. But yeah, the three different tracks. It's about what I got off them too. Yeah, from a, from a functional standpoint, the flute does get certain reactions from certain Pokemon. Uh, most obviously, I would say on the first level, you can use it to wake up Snorlax and make it dance a little bit, which is pretty neat. You can also use it, and there's a lot of Pikachu in this game. You can often use the 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 flute to make it, uh, you know, discharge electricity or whatever. And it has a few other uses uh, throughout the game that make certain Pokemon react in in certain ways. But we we definitely wanted to, to mention that one. Okay, well, as far as sound goes, uh, let's talk about the voice acting in this game, because it definitely uses some stuff from the anime. Definitely have Madeline Blaustein as Meowth. Uh, although it, it, Meowth doesn't uh, talk, uh, you know, human speak in this one, but you can definitely tell. It sounds a little different than I would say what it was in the anime. I'm not sure. They must have recorded this like late 98 or early 99 for the um for the English version of course we have uh, professor oak's voice um i think it's it's credited to stan hart i think um although that's a stage name uh for the guy who did the the professor oak's voice in the four kids era of the dub and and then i kind of noticed that there's actually some it, it sounds like there's some Japanese voices, uh, not just the ones that they traditionally use in the anime, like Star You and Star Me, but like I think the Geodude might be using the uh, the the Japanese voices because it doesn't sound anything like you know the mm-hmm. the voice that's typically used in the English dub. Any thoughts on on any of the uh, the voices, uh, the the Pokemon or character voices in the game? Yeah, um, the research I did implied that. The, this movie was brought to the West before some of these Pokemon had de- debuted in the anime, and we kind of know that they were making up Pokemon names on the spot in the voice booth, or, or Pokemon sounds, rather. The names were already decided. Um, so, yeah, they probably just, for any of the Pokemon that they hadn't really picked a name for that sounded close enough, they probably didn't bother to record anybody doing it. They probably just used the dialogue that was already there. But you can tell all also that there are some Pokemon like Grimer and et cetera that have been updated 
and and of course Ikue Otani is Pikachu. Right, although e- even she sounds in the a early seasons of the anime sounds a bit different than what she would hear now in in, in the show. It was this is a very early game to be using anime stuff. So yeah, I think Jinx is the one I noticed the most as being different because I I don't think it actually makes the Jinx sound at all, does it? Yeah, I, I don't know if I heard too much from it. Uh, you have to use uh, Jinx is another one of the ones you have to use the the Pokemon the po- flute Pokemon. on to do some to make it really do much of anything on there. I guess I should point out that if you, I don't know if this was from a later release of the game on cartridge, but definitely if you play the virtual console versions, they have uh, recolored Jinx to be purple in those releases for uh, a political correctness purposes. I guess you could say. But that's, I guess, a story for another day, but I did kind of want to mention that that's something that happens in the uh, virtual console versions of these games. So, yeah, overall, I'm fairly pleased with the voice acting. Like I said, I, th- I think they did have to stick with some of the, the Japanese stuff, either due to time constraints or the number of voice actors or or, or things like that. Um, I mean, Professor Oak and, and Todd do both have lines in this game, although they're not super verbose they're usually just uh, a few <laughs> words here and there but yeah i think that covers uh, a good portion of really kind of all the sound in this game it's like i said it, it's got some little quirks here and there the music is less energetic and more ambient um the sound effects are, are also uh, more along the main. So it comes together as kind of a, a somewhat unique package. And I think that's a good way to describe this game musically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any other sort of wrap up thoughts on the sound of this game? Um, n- Nothing beyond what you said. Like I said, it's just unique and pleasant. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's a pretty good overview of the music of Pokemon Snap then. Our next episode, since we're going in chronological release order of the side games, another N64 game uh, released in early 2000 in the U.S., and that is Pokemon Stadium. So this one, very much a contrast to Pokemon Snap. It reuses a lot of stuff from the main series games, obviously redone on the N64 quote-unquote sound hardware. And it does have a, a few additional tracks as well. Uh, probably more to talk about there, although we did get a good discussion on a snap. Until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Making my way any way that I can has a longer history than you might be aware of. It doesn't go super far back, but the earliest version I found is by Winona Judd on the soundtrack to the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg business comedy, The Associate. The song would then show up on a Marsha Hines album in 1999, which was soon followed by the Billy Piper version you're probably familiar with. Each of these features a different arrangement, but the more electronic instrumentation in Piper's rendition is probably what made it the choice for the Pokemon soundtrack. As for the lyrical content of the song, The theme of strength overcoming adversity results in an experience that I think would have fit in very well on To Be a Master. What's most interesting, however, is the way phrases that were originally intended as metaphors become literal when applied to Pokemon. The source material is a game in which you cross rivers and climb mountains. If you really want to stretch it, there's also reference to strength. Not bad for a song that was probably written before the games were even out in Japan. In any event, Feel free to check out those other versions. There's at least one more that I didn't mention. And let us know what you think. Thanks. Hi, I'm Steven Reich. I'm from an organization called PokePress. Uh, Erica, why don't you tell us, first of all, how'd you get into voice acting? Um, well, I come from a theater and film background, so I did a lot of musical theater and straight theater when I was, um, when I was younger. And also, I've always been a fan of anime and video games. Uh, And so when I was a senior, I actually majored in theater at UCLA. And my senior year of college, I just decided not to put all my eggs in one basket. And in addition to doing an on-camera demo, I decided to make make voiceover demos as well. And the guy who made my demos, his name is Richard Tatum, he offered to walk me in to his agency. And... That's kind of the rest is kind of history. That's how I got into it. It was sort of just a, 
you know, throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks um, situation. And voiceover is the thing that really took off for me, and I've been doing it ever since. What were some of your first professional roles as a voice actor? My first professional role was a role, it was Ibarra Naruse in a show called Capellian. It was a little Viz Media show, and I was the lead. It was like my first role in anything, and it was a lead, which was kind of crazy. And then, and then I booked the voice of Barbie. I think my first big game I ever did was I did incidentals in The Division, and I remember being so excited. I voiced like a vendor, and I was so, so stoked. Yeah, I think those are roughly the first few roles I've had. And you've uh, done a number of things for Pokemon. One of those was in uh, one of the uh, sort of mini-series that they did. You did the yeah. voice of Lorelai. How'd that come about? Uh, I, my friend Laura Post was helping cast it, and she called me in, and I read for Lorelai, and then I left, and I ended up booking the role. It was actually um, an in-person audition, which was cool. I, which It was really cool for me because I played Pokemon Yellow, so she was one of my gym leaders, and... Um, it was kind of crazy to voice Lorelai. I think I only had like three lines, but it was pretty awesome. And more recently, uh, you don't remember a ton about it from what we discussed earlier, but uh, you did do some work for the Pokemon Masters I mobile did, game. Did, yeah. How is how is doing work for a mobile game different than doing stuff for an animated series? What, uh, how, what are some of the big differences? Well, you're not dubbing. Um, first of all, you're literally, when you're recording for a video game, generally you're just running down a bunch of cues and doing them, not to picture. So that was different. Um, yeah, it was just a typical kind of video game record for those two. But they were fun. I remember, like, making a voice for Rachel was kind of a thing. Because we had to make sure that Maylene and Rachel did not sound the same. And I loved, well, Rachel reminded me of Sabrina a little bit. And I loved Sabrina. I loved Sabrina, um, the, the gym leader um, from my childhood when I watched Pokemon. And her, I thought her arc was really cool, and uh, she reminded me of her a little bit. So it was nice. It was fun. And uh, what else have you done recently as a voice actor? Uh, TV shows, movies, anything? I was recently in, um, I was recently in a cool uh, online short called Hell of a Boss um, by Vivzy Pop. And, she, and it was really fun. I voiced every female character in it. And... That was awesome. And I'm also in, I'm Jesse in the Final Fantasy VII Remake, which I'm really excited about. I just worked on Persona 5 The Royal. I voiced Futaba Sakura in that game. I'm also in a cool game. Um, I don't know if anyone is a fan of Life is Strange, but I'm working on the uh, sort of the successor to that called Tell Me Why by Don't Not Entertainment. It's a really cool game um, in no small part due to the fact that it has a uh, transgender protagonist. It's like the first time I think that's ever happened. Oh, I'm in Thundercats. The new Thundercats is Chitara and Wily Kit. Um, Thundercats called Thundercats Roar. So, yeah. Neat stuff there. Uh, what else have you done while you've been in Milwaukee for the convention? I got in last night at midnight, so I slept, and then I and then I've been doing stuff all day. So they keep you very busy, don't they? They do well, especially because I'm not here for a ton of time. So they because I had a I had a last minute record uh, in LA. So yeah. Well, good to see that you're busy. Thank you very much for coming in to this year's convention. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Okay, so let, let's take a little bit of time out here in our bonus segment to talk about the game itself. You know, it, it, as I mentioned in the intro, that this is one of those games that kind of some people get and some people just don't. It seems kind of trivial to some folks. Why would you want to do this? But there, there's there's a definite game here with the, the scoring system and the, the various abilities you get. You get some apples. Uh, you get something called a pester ball, which annoys Pokemon. And, and some things like that. Uh, what, what did you kind of think, Anne, about the, the game mechanics overall? I really like them. Because as you say, there's there's a scoring system. There's some skill. Like, there is definitely some subjectivity. I always argued with Professor Oak over which was the better pose. But I really appreciate that it's not focused on battle. It's It's focused on another aspect of the Pokemon world. And being able to capture Pokemon in a way that doesn't involve 
like fighting is I think something that for parents was very appreciated. I remember my mother was very against fighting style games and she many times lauded that there would be a game just about taking pictures and enjoying nature and it was fun and and engrossing. I I, I think it was something very different in video games um, or at least the perception we had of video games at the time. That is an interesting comparison, although I should point out there is some definite, there are some ways you can make the Pokemon fight each other, like with the apples and stuff, they can sometimes True. fight over those. <laughs> um, and, then, and you have the, 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 the coughing chasing the Jigglypuff for some odd reason in the, uh, the cave save level. It and, yeah. But, you know, this, is, this game is classified as kind of an, an on-rails shooter, which, you know, Obviously, given the photography angle, is is definitely more. This is more non-violent, but obviously there is, you know, the uh, if you have uh, a weapon-based uh, game, then then it is a little more violent in that genre, and they're not mm-hmm. completely dissimilar, even though the tonally they're they're quite different. But yeah, I think that is that is those are some good points there. I did kind of want to mention. Let's see about the kind of the control scheme on here. Uh, you have the option of. Uh, because you you use the control stick to uh, you know move the camera reticle around and look where you're where you're go- going there. Uh, I think to default it uses what's called uh, inverted controls, where pressing down makes it goes go up, and pressing up makes it go down. Is that the way way you played it there, or did you you turn those off? And I'm just kind of curious about that particular um, point. I started with them because like it's very simple to similar to like airplane type movements but yeah like i did eventually have to go and kind of configure a bit just because it got weird but yeah at the beginning i was using just the default controls and spinning around and finding all sorts of weird shots <laughs> i managed to get used to it um it, it sort of varies by game and and sort of the the nature of it of course um you know since i was playing this on the wii u gamepad part of me at least initially wanted to try and use you know uh, motion controls or, or gyro oh. controls to, to move around, which of course you can't do in this in this game. They would have to have somehow patched that in. Some other camera based uh, games, um, including some Pokemon related stuff, does use that type of uh, control method in in one form or another. I guess mechanically, the other thing I wanted to, to go into um, was sort of the there's there's a light puzzle solving element in here where you have to use your tools to to get pokemon either to sort of make them do certain things and and stuff like that like you can you know you can throw apples and they'll sometimes be attracted to that or if you accidentally hit them uh they'll do other things um then you like i said you get the pester balls which kind of will flush out certain pokemon or just make them uh, a little annoyed or or confused or whatever However, in order to unlock a couple of the levels, I think notably the, let's see, the uh, volcano level, let's see, the cave level, and then to get to the hut by the river, you have to use these things to get, like, trigger switches. And, you know, I think for the most part that does work, but I, I, these puzzle mechanics, I think there's there's one case where they don't they don't work very well, maybe a couple, actually. In the uh, the valley level... In order to get to the hut by the river, you have to do several things. So you have <laughs> a, a manky that's at the top of this, uh, you know, hill or, or this part of the mountain, and you have to knock it down. But in order to do that, there's a squirtle that you have to like when it's in its shell. You have to hit it in uh, with an apple and, and knock it into this manky. And this took me a number of tries. Even once I, I had to look up how to do it. Because it's, it's, I didn't find that particularly obvious. There's some other cases where they give you hints, like in the tunnel level, you can hit some of the Electabuzz and they'll light up a sign that gives you some hints about how to, to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you're kind of on your own. And, you know, if you don't hit the squirrel the right way, the shell doesn't won't hit towards the, the manky. Eventually, this kind of got so frustrating, I, I had to use one of the... Uh, one of the features of the Wii U Virtual Console is that you can use restore points, so uh, which are otherwise called save states in uh, other contexts. But basically, eventually, because this is at the very end of the level and was kind of annoying, I eventually had to just create a restore point and give it a couple shots there. And eventually I did get it, and that was how I was able to progress <laughs> in the game. But that was one of the points where I felt that they had not done 
such a a, a, <laughs> a great job there. So uh, now that I've sort of dumped that one out, uh, <laughs> and what did you think of sort of the puzzle solving or experimentation elements in this game? Well, as a, a grown woman who didn't have a lot of time before this podcast with the game, I looked everything up and kind of you know, went through all the FAQs and the walkthroughs. So I, I cheated a little. Um, but I remember when I first played this game and, you know, the internet was not as accessible as it is now or as as much info. Like, you discovered everything on your own and it was kind of fascinating to be like, just, you know, trying a pester ball instead of an apple one day or, you know, what happens if I attack that coughing and like suddenly you get the Jigglypuff putting on a show like, that was really exciting. So on the one hand, I really love the mechanic. But as you say, there's a couple of them that are just really difficult for kids um, <laughs> who have less motor control, especially. So I, I think there definitely could have been a few things that were maybe not so complicated. But I really love the idea that, like, there's just hidden little things and puzzles. And you have to try different things and try new things and get different reactions out of the Pokemon. In a way, it almost kind of feels like they were padding out the game by making something a little more more obtuse. Mm. I suppose they could have maybe put like a... For that one I mentioned with the Squirtles, maybe put a some sort of marking, some very light marking on the mountain to sort of suggest, or maybe a very faint arrow to suggest that, hey, maybe you, when the Squirtle's in its shell, you can... Do that. If there was something like that, I, I totally missed it. Like I said, I just had to to look mm -hmm. this one up as to how it works. And even then, it took me a couple tries to figure out how to get it, how to time it so that it would go where I I kind of wanted it to. But yeah, so I think that might be something where they they needed to to work on it a little bit more. So I, I guess kind of the other thing I wanted to talk about is you know. This game is part of kind of a long series of photographic elements within the Pokemon franchise. Like, sort of the first thing is actually uh, back in 98, before the main games came out, this wasn't literally the first time Pokemon had sort of made a cameo in the West, but the, the Game Boy camera has a bunch of Pokemon stuff in it, and that was a Creatures Game Freak production, so that's probably one of the reasons why there's some of that stuff in there. And, and then we... You know, I know that there is some photography stuff in, like, the, at least one, if not both, of the Poke Park games on the Wii. Uh, there was Dream Radar for Pokemon Black and White or Black and White 2, which was mm -hmm. used uh, the camera on, like, the 3DS to sort of uh, acquire things that you could transfer over. Uh, let's see. And then there was more camera stuff. Once they started adding cameras to some of the games, you started to see more and more of that stuff with, like, X and Y Sun and Moon, and of course, I think one of the, the big things uh, was with Pokemon Go, where you could take AR photos, that's sort of a takeoff mm -hmm. from the earlier Pokedex 3D app, that you could sort of take that in, and you know that, that sort of feeds into social media, where you can do all these neat things, and I think that may have benefited the franchise as a whole. What do you think about that, that sort of, you know, through line there that goes, you know, straight through this game? Uh, any ideas, Anne, about what I just said? Well, definitely, as you say, the social media aspect, even before social media was a thing, like a big part of the original Pokemon game was sharing and connecting with people and like you had to trade with other people to complete the game. So I think it's very much got a, the game and the franchise has always had a community aspect and the ability to share pictures or stickers or whatever, or, or whatever it was in which particular game has always been a part of it. And I think now that we have social media and like the Instagrams and things, pictures are, are just a, a very easy way to share with each other and to communicate and build that community. And, and just talking about this game for a moment, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, there were these kiosks I, in the U.S. They were in blockbuster video stores where you could take your yeah. cartridge and print off those stickers that also worked for Stadium and um, things like that. So it was uh, very much a, a through line with this. And I, I think that in the early days, Pokemon had, as a, as a property, had no idea that 
this type of thing would be coming along eventually, but I think it may have prepped their audience, the the millennial audience that grew up with these <laughs> games, somewhat for the uh, desire to to share this and and sort of you know do some promotion on behalf of themselves, I guess you could say. So yeah, that that yeah. is kind of a kind of an interesting thing that this this isn't quite the first instance of that in, in the Pokemon franchise, but it's it's a pretty important one. See, so uh, other things here. Uh, what about Todd Snap as a character? Uh, he was, at least in the U.S., I don't know exactly how it would have worked out in Japan. I guess he was in the TV show. I don't know. It must have been while this game was in development and they were planning to do that, whereas by the time he came in the spring of 99 to the TV show for like a, a couple episodes, he was there. Uh, any thoughts on Todd Snap as a character, both inside and outside this game? Um, Outside this game, I, I've always... Well, no, that's a lie. I've not always liked him, but I I have found that he is pulls interesting things out of Ash's character. And again, I'd like seeing the world of Pokemon fleshed out outside of the trainers. And he is he is somebody with a very different life mission. Inside the game, I, I did think it was interesting that they used Todd. I mean, this would have been too early for Tracy, so but yeah yeah that it was a, a character who did show up in the anime and not a nameless character and i'm very interested to know like which one came first if if this game started developing and then they put the character of todd in the anime or if they were developing this game and then realized they had a photographer character and decided to just design him after that that would be good to know. I, I couldn't find. I did look up, like I said, I some, some documentation <laughs> on this one. And, and Todd does come back yes, in, in Gen 2 for a little bit. Yeah, he might not in Carnicles, but he's. you're right about Gen 2. He, Todd definitely shows up for that. Yeah, he's not maybe the most, you know, because in these, this game he's a, a, a character avatar for, for you. You know, it, it doesn't, uh, he doesn't have a maybe the most fleshed out character in there but so maybe maybe a bit of a gimmick character but um certainly somewhat uh, beloved there uh, i have considered since i do media stuff uh at events at maybe in conjunction with that doing like some some cosplay especially when my hair is gotten really long it starts to poof out a bit like his hairstyle i, I need to find the right shirt though that's awesome um take pictures <laughs> Need to probably dye it a little bit too to more of a more of a, a lighter brown. <laughs> but um, I guess the last thing I want to talk about with this game, you know, I mentioned it has a, quite a fan base from people who originally played it, and like I said, it has a bit of a legacy from all the photography elements in, in later Pokemon games. What do you think? Uh, would you want to see a sequel to this, a remake, something? I think they would have to definitely put more content in it if they want to do that because. Um, the level count on this game is is not super impressive by modern standards. But uh, what, what kind of thoughts do you have, Anne? Well, I definitely think um, with VR and and like just the level of sophistication that video games have today, like they could definitely remake it and do a lot more content, a lot more just interesting things with it than I think were possible back in the day. One thing I would be interested in exploring is I'd, I'd like to see what's that um, the kid from the Unova region who does all the camera work is his name Cameron? Um, no, it's not. It's not Cameron. Cam it's Luke. It's Luke. L Luke. Yeah, I think Cameron is like is, is the Todd's rival. Well, I think it's that. Well, I'm not sure. I think I thought that was Todd's alternate last name because they weren't sure about. Uh, oh, <laughs> they were going to have issues with Kellogg's over the name Snap. But, uh, uh, interesting. But yeah, like if it would be interesting to like have this game revamped and have a documentary where instead of taking pictures of the Pokemon, you're trying to film scenes like that could be something interesting to explore. Um, but I definitely think there's lots of potential with the, the just the, the myriad new technology available to us. Yeah, it, it is definitely interesting there. Of course, this, this is a topic that keeps coming back. I, I mentioned the Wii U uh, gamepad that has gyro control, so does the, the 3DS. And then, you know, earlier this year, if you bought the Deluxe Labo VR kit, one of the things you can build there is a, a cardboard camera that goes around the Switch. And, you know, that's gotten <laughs> folks to, to ask again. And, and, and the Pokemon folks have kind of said that no there's really nothing planned but i wouldn't rule out sometime in the future for the 
for for them to make this. I, I am kind of glad, though, that it didn't come out on the Wii U because Pokemon Snap U sounds like a very dangerous game. But, <laughs> um, but I, I do kind of, having now played the game, I've seen it at like uh, in the retro section of various uh, conferences and whatnot. Uh, having actually played it now, I definitely see where folks are coming from, and I think there is definitely some potential if they wanted to, to come back to this idea. But we'll have to see if that ever does happen. Uh, all right. Well, well thank, thanks once again, Anne. This has been a great little bonus segment. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks. Thanks. It's always kind of interesting. This seems to be a tendency for, for N64 games to have, like, two credit sequences because, like, Stadium has two of them and uh, Diddy Kong Racing has two mm. of them. But that's, that's for structural reasons as well. Not sure if that was a theme that was going on at that time in, in video games or, or or what to have a a secondary credits theme for a secondary credits sequence. Uh, 